Good evening, Praxis. Uh, it's good to be with you again, even though it's virtually and remote. Uh, I'm Rob. Uh, for those of you who may not have uh, met me before, um, I'm old, and we'll just leave it at that. Anyway, so I'm uh, here, uh, thankfully, to uh, be able to present to you finally a message. Um, and I want to thank Chris, and I want to thank Alan as well. Uh, they took up Slack for me twice, not once, but twice, um, because I had to delay for various personal um, situations that came up in life. So I appreciate their flexibility and willingness to, kind of, to cover. So with further ado, let's uh, continue on and study God's words tonight. You know, they say life comes at you fast. You know, one day you're busy applying for a chosen or a choice grad school. You're lining up interviews for a residency that you're interested in. You're working on your first major project at work. Um, you're getting comfortable in a new church. You're building some promising friendships. Uh, you're moving into a new apartment with new roommates. And then suddenly, you know what, the next day, you're worried you don't have enough toilet paper, you don't have enough rubbing alcohol, and there's not enough canned chili in the cabinet. Then, once you've secured enough homemade masks and successfully navigated working from home, you wake up to find that the deli downtown in your home city is burning and your social feed is begging for you, clamoring for you, to provide a position on where you stand on one particular cause or a candidate. And if that was not fast enough for you, Let's talk about the next three months of 2020. Murder hornets, phase one. Phase two, back to phase one again. Stock market moves, homelessness, a divergent magnetic anomaly, complaints about mailboxes. And if that itself wasn't enough, we live in a time where a haircut and hand sanitizer are causes for celebration and criminals are the ones who don't wear masks. The genesis of tonight's message comes from all of these different events and from seeing in others as well as observing and feeling in myself a desire for God to act in all of these ways and to resolve all of these things, to resolve the evil in the world, to end the lockdown, to get us back to normal life, to find us a cure, to end our suffering. It seems though we're waiting and we're still waiting. We also know we often wait for God to bring resolution outside of a pandemic, outside of social justice causes. God has us waiting when we ask questions about the decisions that we have about where to live, what job to take, how to resolve a broken friendship, how do we find forgiveness with a strained relationship within the family, how do we look for a job, how do we know what career to pick, how do we seek fellowship, how do we find a church, and many other matters that we are anxious about. We know because scripture tells us that we have to be patient when it comes to seeing God work. The scriptures read in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 40, verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Galatians 5, 5, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. But you know what? We don't feel strong. We don't feel like God is hearing our cries. We are not eager to wait. And so the question comes to us, when will God answer my prayers in the things that matter to me? And I, say, I submit to you that the answer to our uncertainty is not to ask the question, where are you, God? But instead to ask of ourselves the question, where are we? It is a question that speaks to our relationship with God. Tonight, we turn to look into the heart of one who spoke from a deep 
pits of despair many times in his life, and in the midst of many enemies, and yet he was one who was able to find a steady assurance, a steady rock for footing, and a reason to wait for his God. He found answers, not by shaking his fist at God, but by placing his trust in God, by growing his relationship with God. In our own worlds of chaos, we make sense of our troubled circumstances and delayed blessing by, or we should, by pl placing ourselves in a place to be changed by coming to know Jesus Christ. We'll be using Psalm 37 tonight as our guide to study in understanding where we are in our relationship with God. We will see first that the people of God are not conformed to godless opposition. Next, we will see the people of God have transformed hearts. Next, after that, we will see that the people of God, transformed by this faith, perform as God's agents. And finally, these things will lead us to our last point, that God's people are more concerned about their God than their circumstances. Turn with me as we read Psalm 37, and we hear the words of King David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Let us open his time in prayer. Father, we ask simply that you would open your word to us. Teach us through your servant David to know what it means to trust in you, to wait in you, and help us, Lord, to understand that that is not something that is simply comes to us, that it is not a bolt of lightning out of the skies, but it comes from being in relationship with you. So, Father, teach us, humble us as we come before your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. David, the king of Israel, was no stranger to difficulties. Destined from an early age to be king by a prophecy and described as a man who loved the Lord throughout his life, David encountered many trials. He was threatened by the king he ultimately replaced and was forced to leave behind his life fleeing to survive in the wilderness. He was attacked, he was threatened, he suffered moral failures, and later in life his own son turned against him in a grab for power. Around him David could see difficult circumstances and he could see the evil men prospering at his expense. For example, in Psalm 37, references in verses 12, has a, David points out the schemes of evil people against God's people, the wicked plots against the righteousness, the righteous. And in verse 16, David himself mentions the abundance of many wicked, pointing to how they prospered over him. Throughout the psalm, the way of the wicked is contrasted against the way of the righteous. David's poem speaks of how, in the face of opposition and difficulty, in the midst of confusion and chaos, how the righteous are to conduct themselves. These aren't merely academic questions or theological doctrines to learn, but they are deeply personal. And David speaks from a deeply personal place. And perhaps for us, we could relate to David because we are in similar situations where we feel opposition. Now, we may not have somebody trying to spear us like King Saul tried to spear David, 
but we feel attacked by our culture. We feel oppressed by our circumstances, and we feel oppressed by others. Let's dive first into the first two verses of David's psalm, where we find a king-to-be recommending two courses of action to those people who observe and experience evildoers in this world, who themselves suffer at the hands of sinners and sin. David writes, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. There are two commands here, right? First is to not fret, and the second is to not be envious. Fret and envy are attitudes that many people feel when they experience evil and observe evil, prospering in this world. But David says to God's people, do not conform to this godless opposition. Do not conform to this godless opposition. That is, God's people are not to be influenced or swayed into sin by the sin of others. People fret, or other word, in other words, worry when things happen and wrongs are committed to them when the, and they're not corrected. There is no justice in this world, we cry. We are anguished when somebody steals from us. We can't stop thinking about that unruly customer that lied about our performance in front of our boss and does affect our working relationship with those who rule over us. We can't sleep when we're targeted by hurtful gossip because somebody else wants to increase their social standing. We want somebody to suffer for, our, for what we, the way we suffer. In our weaker moments, let's be honest, in that dark of night, we harbor secret fantasies of violence and punishment being done to wrongdoers. Of, and we might, in our even darker moments, fantasize about executing that punishment, being that angel of God's vengeance. This is the first reason why David says, do not fret. Do not worry in Psalm 37. It's because fretting, worrying, dwelling on the wrongs done to us will lead to our own downfall into sin. Worrying may lead us to sit in judgment of others, ignoring that such judgment is simply reserved by God himself. We seek to control our own circumstances rather than letting God control them. And in so doing, we fall into sin ourselves. Now, justice in itself is not wrong. Seeking to find the scales of justice balance is not wrong. But what David is warning against is an attitude that tries to seek vengeance for personal wrongs. Parents must punish children not out of vengeance because the child has violated or disrespected or dishonored their role as a parent. No, parents have to correct and punish children out of love for the straying child. In a similar way, this is how Christ calls us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44, that our actions would lead others to repentance and is not for the balancing of our own personal scales. It is no coincidence that Matthew 44 is a passage within Jesus' message the Sermon on the Mount, which famously, famously starts with the Beatitudes. And the third Beatitude is this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. Meekness is that quality that is asked of us when we are asked not to seek our own right, uh, wrongs righted. It is where we do not seek personal vengeance. 
Meekness is the strength to not lash out in anger and vengeance, and it is the strength to trust in the Father's justice. And that is what David is calling us to do, to practice strength in the face of personal struggle. There's another reaction that David warns against, that is not to be envious. Now, why on earth would he talk about envy here? Is he saying that he, we want, is he saying that we are wanting to sin like other people sin and get away with it? No, I think the psalmist is speaking about our tendency to be as greedy as those who commit sin. The difference is they went ahead and did it and did something about it. In gaining great wealth or power or position, others might have done what we want to do. But they only did it in an underhanded, sneaky, harmful, sinful way that we ourselves may be tempted to, but didn't ultimately do. But we are prone to the same sin they are. Now, I recently read about a social media celebrity, one of those people whose only reason they are famous is that they are famous. Apparently their talent is spending money and living frivolously. This celebrity traveled the world, partied on huge yachts, drove exotic cars, was surrounded by beautiful people, and as far as I can tell, didn't do much beyond that. The backstory of this person is, as I investigated a little bit further, is that they traveled the world to avoid being extradited for the crimes committed and gaining the wealth that they enjoyed. Now, we observe some people, and you know, we might wag our fingers and go, oh, that's terrible. But there is an element in envy sometimes that they have it all as far as this world is concerned, even though it is ill-gotten. We watch. We think how nice it would be to sail on a yacht around the Greek islands, to be a gentleman thief, to dine in the finest restaurants this world has to offer, to covet and get the things of this world. What are the movies that I love to watch? Godfather, Godfather 2, Godfather 3, Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, Ocean's 13, Heat, Shawshank Redemption. Now, do you see a common theme there? The crime thrillers. Our fiction tells us something about ourselves. David, though, warns us against dwelling excessively on those who commit evil to us, as well as envying those who commit this evil because we similarly could follow the same path. Do we round down a little bit on our tax returns because we don't have enough money? Do we embellish the truth a little bit to defend ourselves before our bosses? Do we put up false pretenses or over-exaggerate our own piety to impress others? All in the name of, you know what? That other person did it, I'm not as bad as them. The counsel David offers to combat this is found in verse two. Let's repeat that. They will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. David is referencing the world and all those who, who inhabit it who are without God, that this world and these people will soon wither like a small tender green plant under a hot sun in, in the Arizona desert in the middle of summer. This is a statement pointing to the brevity of life in comparison to the eternity of God. You may think that 80 years is a long time to live right? When you're young and you're trying to establish your career, you feel like, you know what, middle age is really far away and I don't have to think about it. After all, most of you are only about a quarter of the way through your life. But the reality is our lives last as long as the blink of an eye or the snap of a finger for God. 
In the grand scheme of things, 80 years is nothing. God's people, says David, must turn away from desiring immediate satisfaction and gratification in light of an eternal future to come because this present earth is going to dry up and wither away. Psalm 37, 16 and 17, David summarizes this beautifully. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. It is better to be righteous and poor now if it preserves our eternal destiny in heaven with God than it is to be momentarily rich for these next 40 to 50 years in the luxuries of the world and then be eternally damned. It is pointing to remember, David was the victim of attacks and banishment by King Saul, and David was denied kingship for a time. Now, I'm a comic book guy, so I kind of like alternate universes. I like retcons, I like bizarro worlds. Now in an alternate reality, bizarro biblical world, if you will, the Bible could have shown us an account of David assuming the throne by some underhanded means, perhaps court intrigue, where David dupes Jonathan, Saul's son, into overthrowing his father. Perhaps David could have hired courtesans to trick Saul into some poor decision. Or perhaps David could have hired an assassin and an outright coup could have been attempted. Now, if we had read this, what I would like to call a Bible fanfic, David would be portrayed, be portrayed as shady and cunning. And while we would not have looked at him as our moral better, we certainly would have understood why David stooped to such low measures. Back in the real world, though, that is not what happened. David stayed true, waiting on God faithfully, trusting in the Lord, trusting in his providence, knowing that he was right, rather than taking matters into his own hands or envying somebody else's position. David is saying this is how we ought to be treating our opposition. God's people, like David strove to be, are, again, not to be conformed to be like the godless opposition. We are not to live out the behaviors and desires of the world when confronted by injustices or inequality. They are not, we are neither to be so concerned about sin that we ourselves will sin, and we are not to be lured in by the supposed benefits of just bending truth this a little bit. But how can God's people do this? We're tempted constantly day in and day out. How are we as a people of God to take on the eternal view? How can we hold up against wrongdoing? And as we go into our second point tonight, we will find out. David turns from these external influences on God's people and the encouragement that he has for them to turn away from it. Next, David turns to speak about the internal influences God's people must have as we read verses three and four. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The ability to not conform to this world comes from the people of God having a transformed heart. A transformed heart. Before God gets a hold of a person, the heart selfishly seeks after the things of this world. And in the context of Psalm 37 seeks revenge or desires ill-sorted gain. But when God gets a hold of the heart, then his people become something different. David speaks in verse 3 of four things these different people do. They trust in the Lord. They do good. They dwell in the land. They befriend faithfulness. 
and they delight themselves in the Lord. All right, sorry, that's five. Each of these things speak to different elements of a believer's relationship to God. First, trust in the Lord. Sounds pretty self-explanatory, but it's a trust in all aspects of God, not just the things that we like about God. Trust in His sovereignty, trust in His justice, trust in His purposes, even in difficult and uncertain circumstances. Next, do good. It's a command to not just think passively good things about God or just to hope for the best to happen, but it's a command to actively go and act on those that trust. It is a response to faith. If one trusts that God is a good God and that a good God will defend widows and orphans, then his people, likewise, will carry out acts of goodness towards widows and orphans. James writes in chapter 1, verse 22 of his of his letter. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. It is a word that speaks to how deep the trust in God goes. It means that we trust that we can do for God. Next, dwell in the land. Dwell in the land. Now you remember the Jewish concept of land was very important. The holy land, the chosen land, the land of milk and honey. This was where the Jews were to live. But it wasn't just a place where they could live. It was also a place where God dwelled with them. That was where the temple was. And so the land, the holy land, was not merely just a place to live. It was also a place where the Jewish people would be present with their God. It was a place that you were supposed to be here as a Jew. And when you were there, what David is pointing to, that when you dwell in that land, that you should find goodness there, that you should find contentment there. David speaks of the joy and contentment that comes with being home. His true place is the place where God is. Now in verse 4, David also commands the people of God to delight yourself in the Lord. It is a command to find satisfaction in God. Delighting in God, delighting in the Lord, is not merely cracking open the Bible and getting your daily devotional out of the way. It's not, mere, it's not just opening up um, your memory verses and being able to recite them all. No, delighting in God is coming to Scripture, hungry and expectantly, coming to the Lord in prayer, knowing you will find knowledge and comfort and truth, as if one friend is speaking plainly to another. We delight in God by coming to know God. A month ago, prominent author and influential evangel evangelical J.I. Packer went to be with the Lord. He authored the classic book, Knowing God, and in it he wrote, Knowing God is like knowing a friend, and friendship is, quote, a matter of personal involvement. Packer writes in chapter 3 about this. You have to commit yourself to his company and interests and be ready to identify yourself with his concerns. Without this, your relationship with him can only be superficial and flavorous. In order to do so, a person must open their hearts to each other by what they say and do, each taste the quality of the other, for sorrow or for joy. They have identified themselves with and are so personally and emotionally involved in each other's concerns. They feel for each other as well of thinking of each other. This is an essential aspect of the knowledge friends have of each other. And the same applies to the Christian's knowledge of God, which as we have seen is itself a relationship between friends. Delighting in God, it's much like delighting in a friend. It means knowing 
God, like you would know a friend, to savor, to taste, to experience the goodness, the quality of the relationship, striving to see how God is working in the relationship with us as we walk alongside him, just as we would with those who are close to us. Now, what are the results of knowing God? Now, one could read verse 4 to mean, if I worship God, then he will give to me what I desire. But what if right now what I want is a pony? Well, okay, really, a 1965 red Mustang with white sidewalls, that kind of pony. But that, brothers and sisters, is a wrong desire of the hearts. Delighting in God may be many things, but is never delighting in things. That is, delighting in God is not solely enjoying the blessings of God or from God. The implication of verse 4 here is that the joy coming from a relationship with God should never be confused with the joy of having the things that God has given to us. Right? We love our parents, not because they have given us gifts. We love our parents because of the relationship that the gifts represent. There is a transformation going on here that as we learn to delight, that, that we learn as we delight in the Lord. We are transformed to do good. We are transformed to have faith, to be content with God. And this transformation also transforms our desires. Let's speak of this transformation some more. This change is known in the New Testament by another term. And we read about it in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. That is a picture of how the sinner, when placing the trust in God, is born into God's family. No longer belongs to this world, but belongs to God, and so becomes one of his people. Being born again brings a picture of infants, and just like a newborn babe, a newborn Christian is born into a radically new experience. A newborn, one moment, is enclosed in a dark place, constricted and unaware of anything outside of the womb. They may sense some rumblings and sounds, and maybe they feel some prodding, and there's some motion, but they do not fully comprehend the world that is outside of the womb, that they are yet still part of. At the time of birth, for a newborn, there comes a rush of sensory sounds and sights and smells and experiences and relationships. And for the first time after birth, their eyes are introduced to light. And for the first time, they may gain a glimpse of the mother that has been carrying them for nine months. There are strange new things to see that they were only dimly aware of before. And just as natural birth is transformative to the experience of the infant, Christian new birth is transformative to the believer. Like newborn babes, being born again means the believer is free to go forward, unconstricted by walls, and fully embrace and explore reality as their sight can now see and their ears can hear and to take on new desires because they have been born again. Ezekiel 36, 26 speaks very plainly about this transformation. And the Lord says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Being born again. God's people were enslaved in ways that, in such that they way that they had can only do worldly things. They could not live for God. We could not live for God when we were not born again. We were in bondage to conform to the godless ways of this world. Freedom from this slavery is only possible because God's people have been fundamentally transformed by the gospel 
and are no longer slaves to what an unbelieving world thinks what is right and wrong. They are free to not listen to godlessness and instead desire God. We are free to desire different things. True delight in this life comes from a delight in the Lord. And that delight only comes from a personal relationship with God and by being transformed by the, being born again in that relationship. This is the crux of how God meets us. Now, if transformation is the fundamental alteration of the nature of God's people, it is natural that such a fundamental change should be noticeable in some way and noticeable in such a way um, in how they and how people act and how we go about the business of living. Such people who have been changed by God should be more merciful as God is merciful. Such people should be more forgiving as God is forgiving. Such people should be more willing to sacrifice just as God has sacrificed and so forth. And this is what we're going to see in our next point. Now, initially I'm reading verse 5 of the Psalm 37. It sounded like if we were to believe in God, then God will go and do something for us. That is, if we put in the coins of faith by reading our Bible, then on the other side, God does something for us. Verse 5 reads this, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. So if I trust in Him, if I say my prayers, what's He going to do for me? But then if we read verse 6, it seems to also say that God will bless people through the giving of fame and praise in exchange for good works. So it's like, hmm, this is kind of confusing. Verse 6 says this, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. But together, verses 5 and 6, a more meditative reading of this passage reveals something more. Verse 6 does speak of God um, putting the righteousness and faithful on display, seemingly giving them more honor, putting them in the light, making their acts of justice as apparent as the hot sun in the middle of the day. But this displays the result of actions of God's people as they live out the transformation occurring in their hearts, right? So transformation happens. People act in a, in a righteous way. God shows that to the world around them. But what God, David is saying is not that God's people will be given honor and glory. What David is saying is that people will be the very agents of the change that God wants. They will be the agents of righteousness and justice. They will perform as God's agents. They will perform as God's agents. And they will be, we will be, the vehicles through which God acts as lights into this world, bringing God's goodness to those that we, what we, we serve. Repeating James 1.22 again. Be doers of the word. Be executors, if I might interpolate into that. Be executors of God's justice and mercy, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. The activity of true faith is proven through righteous deeds. Righteous deeds do not make for faith. Faith makes for the righteous deeds. Now, as we near the end of tonight's passage, we find ourselves in verse 7, and we end here. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Ah, finally we get to actually talking about waiting on the Lord. This passage might seem like another command for us to obey, and along with not fretting or not being envious, to trust to do good, to delight, and so on. But to wait on the Lord, well, to be successful at that requires more than just toughing it out, requires more than just knowing the right things to do, requires more than just what are the prescribed 18 ways a person waits on to God. You cannot wait on the Lord through force of will or lots of intelligence, sorry to say. Waiting on the Lord requires God's people 
wakes, requires us to be more concerned with God than with our circumstances. And this comes through to means that we had just discussed in the first six verses. By waiting, pa waiting patiently requires us to not conform to the world, requires us to be transformed by God's word, requires us to also then demonstrate that that faith in God, that transformation is real as we perform as God's agents. Waiting patiently will show that we are God's people performing as God's servants. Waiting patiently requires a transformed heart. And that transformation is key. That's the center of what we're talking about tonight. To wait on God means that we have to be transformed first. Transformation leads to God's people being more about the business of worshiping God than about worshiping this world. It means God's people are not asking God, where is he? Not because, that they do, not because he doesn't care, but they already know. They already know where he is because they're in his presence. Now, I am more patient with my children when I take time to have a relationship with them, when I think through what they're going through, when I walk alongside and hear what's going on with them at school or with their friends, and understanding who they are, I am more patient, or, well, hopefully a little bit more patient um, towards them. And instead of me trying to impose what I want as a father on them, I listen in here and see what they're doing. The point is to be patient required understanding. I am more patient with my wife in a similar way because I know her and I'm understanding what she has. I have a relationship. I know her concerns and troubles. I know what her motivations are. And instead of imposing my own sin-fueled desires of how she does or doesn't do things, we work together. We can wait on God because we not only understand what God wants us to do, but we come to understand God's heart his desires, and his words for us as we experience him each and every day. When we wait, God is doing something during this period of time. We have to see waiting as a tool used by God for our refinement. It's a tool used by a loving parent in whom we have a relationship with. Smedley Yates provides some suggestions of what waiting can accomplish to the believer, in the believer, and he provides these suggestions in, in one of his chapters in the book, Wait, Waiting on God in a World That Won't Wait. He suggests over 60 things that are commanded to the believer during such seasons of waiting, commands based on scripture. We saw a few of those commands earlier in Psalm 37. Here are some others. Serve God, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Long for God, Isaiah 26, 8 and 9. The people who wait for God return to God, Hosea 12, 6. Those who wait lay aside encumbrances and sin, Hebrews 12, 1. Those who wait keep sober in spirit, 1 Peter 1, 13. Those who wait stir one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Those who wait are strong, Psalm 27, 14. Those who wait hope in God's word, Psalm 130, verse 5. For a few months there, earlier this year, I was waiting for God to make things better, to restore life to the way it was. It was disappointing to miss out, out on basketball and baseball, but both of which held great promise for LA this year. It was very concerning my work will be profoundly impacted in the very near future by what is going on. I have grown frustrated with my church experience because as the grumpy old man, I find Zoom fellowship far less satisfying than being among you personally. Zoom is great when you want to be or slash not be in a work meeting, 
but it's terrible if you want to just hang out with people and just enjoy their presence. You know what I miss about Praxis? I miss the snacks. I miss worshiping as a community. I miss giving the nod to Corey when he shows up late in a suit because he had a court date. I miss thinking of talking about work with Chris and JT. I miss hearing about the creative process of what it takes to shoot a commercial with Joseph. I miss Olivia's insider, NFL insider info. I miss meeting and being encouraged by newcomers. I miss praying together with the brothers. So I was waiting for God to fix this so that I can get back to talking about sports and movies and work and such. However, God is showing me that I'm not really waiting for him when I'm asking for those things. I was waiting for him, for him to remove what I thought were obstacles in my life. Instead of seeing God as active during this time, I was looking for God to ease my circumstances and really not looking for what he was trying to do. God took away sports, movie theaters, and trips to Disneyland, and I have been shown how much I depend on entertainment to fill my time. God took away sports radio to show how much I fill my idle time with nonsense. I had to work from home while the kids also had to do school from home and their activities were canceled. And so I saw my children daily for several hours, daring work, trying to navigate a meeting when everybody's talking about talking at once. This is a difficult thing. But I didn't see that the opportunity we would have as a family to be together for an extended period of time. And I didn't appreciate it enough until Natalie moved away to Chicago this summer. God has been active, but I just assumed that his aims were my aims. And in the end, I'm experiencing how God is transforming my life. I merely needed to humble myself before him, get to know him, and to be in relationship with him, and to see that he is there working on me. When we cry, where are you, God? We are mistakenly saying, God is not with me. No. The reality is that the question is really, is not, that the reality is that the question should not be, where is God? The question really should be, where are you, beloved? Where are you in relationship to God? Are you near him? Or are you trying to walk away? To wait on the Lord is to see that God does not work in our circumstances, but works on our lives. And that requires you, beloved, to be near him, near enough to have personal dealings with him, near enough to taste of his goodness, and so be transformed that your desires are his desires. God's goal is not only to transform the world, but to do so through the transformation of you and me. In doing so, God creates a tabernacle of worship, not embodied in the walls of this church, but in the walls of the flesh formed by your hearts. God's true purposes lie in creating for himself a people who will worship him in song and in deed with love. And it is his singular purpose that David speaks about in Psalm 37. God's people are not to be conformed to this world, but are to be transformed by God so that we are able to do God's work. Romans 12, 2 echoes David's thoughts. And the Apostle Paul writes this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may be able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Go, Praxis. Enter into relationship with your Lord. Find his will. Know his will, and you will be empowered to wait during this time for and on our Lord. 
Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you just for your word that convicts us, that teaches us. Um, you call us to be in relationship with you, not for the sake of blessing us materially, but for the sake of renewing us spiritually. Father, ask, we ask only that we would be humble enough to want that. And Father, whatever stumbling steps we are able to take, we ask, Father, that you would multiply the power of it through your spirit, that our hearts would be gladdened, that we would be able to wait upon you with joy and knowing that you are doing great things in us. And through us, Lord, we might be able to love those around us. Empower us, Lord, and we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Praxis.